And let me encourage you to grab uh, your copy of God's Word if you want to open up to the book of Hebrews. We will be in that book. We're going to hit some other verses, but we'll be in the first chapter of the book of Hebrews our entire time today. I do want to encourage you. There are a lot of other references that I'm going to uh, bring up. And so let me encourage you just to kind of take some notes and... Uh, as we go through this. But let me read one more time the passage that is before us today. Hebrews 1, 1, two, 1 through 3 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray together. God, we pray that as we open your word, you would help us to understand the truths of that are there. Help us to understand the implications of what you have chosen to reveal of yourself in these three verses. God, we pray that you would speak. And help us to align ourselves with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we begin, I want us to think about something. You know, I know uh, the United States is a capitalistic, consumer-driven society. And it's not necessarily the best way to think about theology and faith. But let's just go there for a quick moment. When you think about what prompts you to buy something, when you're going to go to the store and you're looking at two widgets, you're looking at two things, what prompts you to buy one thing over another? Is it value? Do you go for the cheapest thing, the the most bang for your buck? Or do you go for quality, regardless of price? Or maybe you go for durability, figuring if I can spend a little more and it's going to last me a long time, I'm going to save in the long run. Are you a brand person? I worked with a guy this summer at camp, and he was all about Nike. Everything he wore was Nike. Nike, 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 Nike until he wore Adidas, and then people started making fun of him. Or do you purchase something because of the ingredients, what makes up that product? We might think about that more with food than with other things, but what prompts us to purchase the things that we purchase? There are so many factors that can come into that. But, but now think about faith. What, what, when it comes to faith about what you and I believe, what draws us to those beliefs? And, and if we were to ask this to society at large, think about how might they answer that question? Why do you believe what you believe? Is it because of comfort? Is it because what you believe feels comfortable? You've been a part of that for so long that you just, oh, it's, it's settling. Where that faith system fits with your preferences. Or is it consistency? Does that faith system work in every circumstance? Or is it about truthfulness or veracity? Do you believe it because it's true? 
Well, Scripture teaches that it's ultimately God who draws people into belief and into a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. So in many ways, when we come to faith, we could, come, we could say that it's not so much I'm coming because it's the best thing out there. I'm coming because I've been compelled by God, drawn by His Holy Spirit. But what do we do when those doubts begin to set in? What about those times when the difficulties of life seem to muddy the lines of a clearly defined faith. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at uh, the book of Hebrews as we seek to wrestle with various truths. You see, uh, the anonymous writer of Hebrews wrote to a group of believing Jews in the, in the, in the, in the 60s A.D., we might call these people Messianic Jews. They, they had a Jewish background, but they believed in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. But they were facing persecution. And some of those believing Jews were remaining true to their faith and they were standing firm. And so the writer of Hebrews is seeking to encourage them. But others were going back to that old system. That system of sacrifices, that system of taking animals and going, they had they begun to think that maybe Jesus wasn't all he, all he thought he was. And so this entire book, in many ways, is an argument supporting the premise that Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. In fact, that word better shows up seven, eight, ten times throughout the book. Jesus is better than this. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to consider that. And he, but here at the outset, here at the introduction, the author stakes his claim that Jesus is greater than all other elements of the old ways. He makes a, a bold truth claim, or as Raymond Brown noted in his commentary, he really makes eight truth claims in these three little verses. And then backs them up throughout the letter. And these eight claims all seem to point to one clear truth that we'll get to at the end. And that truth is the foundation of our faith. So if you want to take notes, here's the first blank in your, in your outline. If you'd like to follow along there, you see, first of all, we see that Jesus is God's word. The first verse and a half says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You see, what we have to recognize is that God, from the beginning of time, from the beginning of everything, has been a communicating God. From the earliest days of creation, God has been in fellowship and has communicated with his people. He talked directly with Adam and Eve in the garden until they rebelled against him. And then they, were, they cut themselves off from that fellowship with God. But as things progressed, God began to speak directly to different messengers in order to convey his message to his people. We call those people prophets. And the prophets then spoke on behalf of God. And, as, and we could almost call that a sort of representative theocracy. As God spoke to the prophets, the prophets spoke to the people. And so the people sought to do what God wanted them to do. And those prophets of old would speak and write messages that they received from God. But the writer of Hebrews doesn't seem to be saying that the prophets were incorrect in what they were saying. But rather they were incomplete. Now that Jesus had come on the scene, he is the revealed, the spoken and the lived word of God. The gospel of John highlights this. 
Jesus as the word of God or the word made flesh. When John opened his, his book in John 1, 1 saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus as the word of God is revealing God to humanity. He is speaking in ways and fulfilling what the prophets foretold. But not only is Jesus God's word. Secondly, we see that Jesus is God's son. That second verse says he has spoken to us by his son. You see, there are some people who want to reduce Jesus to being just a good man or a good teacher. They, they like the idea of Jesus. Other people want to call him simply another prophet or a man who is uniquely give, gifted, but simply still just a man. Brown notes in his commentary, he says that those Jewish Christians whose, whose faith in Christ was faltering may have come to regard him as merely a good man, a captivating teacher, or an impressive leader. But the writer of Hebrews is basically concluding that he was all of that and more. Jesus was all of that. As the Son, his authority and position far exceed that of any prophet or leader. In fact, in one of his parables, Jesus tells a story about a, a landowner, and, and a landowner has rented out his, his land to some people and, and he went to gather the prophets from that and they kept beating and killing the people that he would send. And so finally he sent his son thinking, hey, they will respect my son. He has special authority. And in the parable, Jesus said that, no, they didn't respect him. Instead, they killed the son thinking, hey, he's the heir and I'm going to take his stuff. What we have to recognize is that as the son, Jesus has a special standing. And he told that parable as a means of communicating to the religious leaders about their own standing and how they have often been working against the plans of God. But because Jesus is God's son, his position implies, and really the writer of Hebrews delineates that thirdly, Jesus is God's heir. Jesus is God's heir. Hebrews 1, 2 says, whom, the son whom he appointed the heir of all things. You see, just as a child is the logical and rightful heir of his or her parents' possessions, Jesus is that appointed or really the rightful heir. All things belong to him. Michael Kruger in his commentary said, the, the whole world, all of creation belongs to Jesus. He is the king. And it's quite possible that as the writer of Hebrews was writing this, he was thinking about a verse in Psalm 2.8 when the psalmist writes, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Abraham Kuyper, a theologian in the 1800s, reflected on the sovereign implications of Jesus and what, who he is and what it means. And really, so if we think about this as Jesus being the heir Kuiper writes, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Jesus is essentially saying, all humanity is mine. Everything there is mine. And there's a sense in which Jesus' inheritance is a work in progress. I mean, think about this. When, as, as parents, when, when we're raising our children, we're spending whatever wealth we have on their development. And then as they go out into the world, we're continuing to collect things, right? 
until at such a time that that inheritance is growing and growing and growing until such a time that we release that into their care. And in the same way, what we have to see, what we have to recognize is that Jesus' inheritance is a work in progress. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary noted that throughout the book of Hebrews, there's this attitude of expectation. There's this attitude of a distinction between what is and what is to come. And already, this is what is now and a not yet. This is what we can expect later on. And as the kingdom of God gradually permeates the kingdoms of this world through the citizens of heaven, then what is here on earth will more fully represent the realities of what's there in heaven. And Jesus' inheritance will be realized more fully. So Jesus, as God's word, proclaims his message. As God's son, Jesus is the rightful heir, but the writer of Hebrews goes on. He doesn't just leave it there. He says, Jesus is God's creative agent. In verse two, it says through whom he created the world. And Raymond Brown, again, in his commentary summarizes the implications of this, basically stating that if the chaos before creation could be overcome, then surely he could control their destiny and provide for their immediate needs. If Jesus could bring order to the chaos of creation, he can certainly bring order to the chaos of our sin-filled lives. Jesus is the means. He's the word by which God created the universe. And again, the, the gospel of John realizes this in John chapter one, verses two and three. It says, he, the word was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. The Apostle Paul, wanting to get in on this in Colossians chapter 1, 16, says, For by him, by Jesus Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. But Jesus is more than simply an instrument. He's not simply the, the, the go-to guy. Say, hey, son, go do this. Go create this or go build that. He is the creative agent by which God created. But we also get to see that Jesus, fifthly, Jesus is God's glory personified. Jesus is God's glory personified. Verse 3, he says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. He said what we have to recognize is throughout the Old Testament, when we see God's encounters with his people, his glory is this is mysterious. In fact, God is often described as being in a dark cloud. God's glory would descend like a fog and there was a a thick darkness. We see that in Exodus 33, 9. And it was as though the glory of God was inexpressible and incomprehensible. We just can't get it. It's too much for us. But in Jesus, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that God's glory is personified. We get to see what holiness and purity look like in human form. We get to see love and grace. In fact, the disciples, right before Jesus was crucified, they said, show us the Father and it will be enough. Philip said that to Jesus in in John chapter 14. And then Jesus replied, he said, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father already. You don't need any more. 
You don't need to see something different. You have seen the Father. So when we see Jesus, when we read about Him, when we watch His actions, when we hear His teachings, we see the glory of God personified. This is not a replacement or a substitute for God. In fact, we see sixthly, say that one time, Jesus is God's essence revealed. Jesus is God's essence revealed. Verse 3 again says he is the exact imprint of his nature. Have you ever heard someone say that so-and-so is the spitting image of her mother or he's the spitting image of his father? We say that to represent the, the way that a mother and daughter might represent each other in their physical characteristics or in their mannerisms or in the way they talk or in the way they hold themselves or in the way they think about things. They're alike in so many different ways. And as, we, as children, we bear in our bodies the physical markers of our parents. A little of mom, a little of dad. But as we begin to grow, we begin to talk like them. We begin to learn their characteristics and qualities. We walk like them. We stand or sit like them. We are still independent and distinct. And as a dad, I love to get to see how my kids are a blend of Danielle and me. I hope they get more of Danielle than me. But in Jesus, we're not seeing a mockery. We're not seeing an imitation of God. We get to see the exact imprint, as the ESV says. The very character, as the New Living Translation says. The exact representation, as the NASB says. The impress of his substance, as the Young Literal Translation says. And the exact likeness of God's being, as the God's Word Translation reveals it to us. You see, there are some who would say that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. We, we look at what happened back there and we think, wow, God was angry and mean and vindictive. And then we open the pages of the New Testament and say, I like, I like this guy a little bit better. But I think what we need to recognize is in Jesus, of course, he's revealed in the New Testament. In Jesus, we see God, the God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, God of all time, yesterday, today, the same forever. We see God's essence personified, his essence revealed. This past spring, Dane Ortland gave a talk at the Gospel Coalition Conference. And he argued from the Old Testament that God's heart is for his people. And if you read the midweek this week, you'll know I, I told you we would have a gift for you. And on your way out, there's a book um, that, that Crossway has given us like 150 copies, which is enough for everybody in every family to have at least one. I know some of you guys have kids that don't read yet, so you can take it and give it away. So at, at the back, make sure you get, uh, get a copy of this book. Let me encourage you to read it together give it away to others. But I want you to think about this. His idea in this book, Gentle and Lowly, is that Jesus is revealing his exact nature. Now remember, we're trying to establish the idea that Jesus is the essence of God revealed. 
So he's telling his disciples, I am gentle and lowly in heart. This is my natural bent. Is that consistent with what it says in the Old Testament? Think about this. So, so let, me, let me have you write down a couple references. In Matthew 28, Matthew 11, 28 to 29, Jesus says this. He says, come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. His natural bent is that way. And, and you might say, but that's Jesus. God of the Old Testament, he's angry and vindictive. But we have to ask the question, and Dane Ortland in his talk asked the question, is that God's heart? Is God angry at the sinfulness of his people in his heart? The Bible tells us over 40 times that God was provoked to anger because of the rebellion of his people. But look at what it says, what God reveals of himself. Exodus 34, 6 through 8. Go ahead and write that down. You can look at it later. God tells Moses, he says, The Lord, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands. And really that word thousands in Hebrew could be translated thousands of generations. Keeping steadfast love for thousands or thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? So when you think about that, when God is acting for justice, he's acting, disciplining only for a couple of generations. But he seeks to show his love for thousands of generations. Or look at what it says in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 through 9. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And this is the part that we're all familiar with. But keep in mind, it's his compassion. God is wanting to have compassion on his people. And then he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Or if we were to flip over a couple books to the right, we'd see in the very middle of the book of Lamentations, these poems that Jeremiah wrote, crying out to God, God, why have you forsaken your people like this? Right in the middle, Jeremiah records these words, Jeremiah 3, 31 to 33. He says, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And look at this. He does not afflict from his heart. Jeremiah tells us that God's heart is not to afflict, not to inflict punishment. And his heart is for compassion. And finally, 
if you have time to check out Hosea chapter 11, but here's a couple of verses. 11 verse 4, it says, I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. And then in verses 8 and 9 of Hosea chapter 11, he says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. So I think what we see is that God's heart, as He spoke of it Himself, is a heart of compassion. Jesus revealed that in His ministry on earth. His discipline toward His people is because He was provoked by their rebellion. And Jesus, being the essence of God, reveals, shows us that He, God, is gentle and lowly at His core. You know, we could dive into that so much more, but I want to save that for another time. Let's get back. We have two more things to really think about. The writer of Hebrews continues by stating that Jesus is God's sustainer. In verse 3 it says, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Where the ESV says He upholds the universe, the Greek really means He upholds everything, all things. Everything we see is upheld by Jesus Christ. Now, I got to tell you, I'm a bit puzzled by this because when I think of Jesus, I think of a man who is walking around on earth. I think of a man with divine capabilities, with divine insight. I think we think of a man who taught and lived a perfect life and died a death he could not deserve. And because, you know, when we all, we all like to impose our own views on God, right? So for me, I picture Jesus being a little taller than I am, a lot skinnier than I am, right? He's got olive colored skin and dark colored eyes and dark hair. How can this figure, this being, this person sustain all things? But he says he does it by the word of his power. And Isaiah 40 says that God can measure the universe by the span of his hand. And Colossians 1:17 says he, Jesus, is before all things and in him all things hold together. And so it really begins to beg the question, is Jesus God? And we've already talked about that some, but I want you just to hold on to that. Is that what he is saying? What the writer of Hebrews is saying. There's one final argument he makes for us. And that Jesus is God's perfect sacrifice. In verse 3, he says, After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, for many first century listeners and readers, the temptation for them was to go back to the old sacrificial system. Keep in mind, this was written in 60 A.D., Do you remember what happened in 70 A.D.? The the Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. So all of this stuff, the the people were like, I'm I'm being persecuted. I don't like this. I'm going to go back because it's comfortable. I can go back to slaughtering animals on behalf of my sin. I think Jesus, he taught some good stuff, but that's all he did. But it's as though God is saying, no, the sacrificial system is done because now Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
There are no more sacrifices able to be made in the temple the way it's supposed to be. And I think God did that intentionally to tell everybody Jesus is the final perfect sacrifice. He died once and for all and sat down. He finished his work. And we don't have to keep getting saved. We don't have to keep returning to the altar over and over. Oh, I don't know if it took the first time because it's not up to us. If we will simply receive what he has done, it is finished, as Jesus said on the cross. So the writer of Hebrews is arguing several very profound things as he opens this letter to Jewish background believers. He says that Jesus is God's word. He is God's son. He is God's heir. He is God's creative agent. He is God's glory personified. He is God's essence revealed. He is the sustainer of all things. He is God's perfect sacrifice. And so, in short, we could lump all that together and say Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is God in the flesh, fully God, fully human. He was a great teacher and more. He was a great leader and more. And again, in Colossians, the Apostle Paul writes uh, in chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So I think here in his opening argument, the writer of Hebrews seems to be begging us, us to ask the question, why would we turn to anything less? If Jesus is the best, if Jesus is greater, where else would we go? So what? What difference does that make now for you and me? Brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope this gives us a joyous confidence as we walk forward in faith. And I pray that we are are reassured of who Jesus is and what he has done. He is sufficient for the task that he completed and the work that he is continuing to do. When you and I are tempted to doubt, I pray that we would reflect on the greatness of Jesus Christ. There is no one greater. But I think it also means that when Jesus teachings and our culture's values oppose one another that they that we should then willingly and joyfully align our lives with jesus teachings even if it opposes what's going on in the world how we think how we act toward others how we use our money and time should be guided by who jesus is because of who he is But I want to encourage you, if you're just checking Jesus out or if you're stuck in a religious system that seems to be lacking wholeness, then let me encourage you to consider the founder of our faith. He's not a mere man with an ego to boost. He is God incarnate who speaks for God, created with God, sustains all things and ultimately gave his life to pay for those things in you and me that run counter to his ways. The Bible calls that sin. He lived what he taught and died so that we might live in him. Early on in Jesus' ministry, he gathered quite a crowd and he taught things that seemed to be upside down from the conventional thinking of the world. 
And it caused this big crowd of people to say, hey, I don't want any of that. I'm going to leave. And so Jesus turned to his 12 disciples. He says, guys, are you going to go too? Are you going to abandon me too? And the apostle Peter wisely replied to him in John 6, verses 68 and 69. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Hear this. There is no priest. There is no shaman. There is no pastor. There is no imam. There is no guru. There is no rabbi or spiritual guide who can compare to Jesus. Jesus is greater because he is God incarnate. Let's pray together. God, we do thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this challenge that you've placed before us in these opening lines of the book of Hebrews. God, I pray that you would help us to walk boldly by faith before you. Help us to walk confidently. And Lord, when we are tempted to look aside, when we're tempted to doubt, when we're tempted to give up, God, I pray that you would reassure us by what you've placed in your word and by the truths that you have embedded in us by your spirit. Help us to walk faithfully before you. Recognizing that you, Jesus Christ, are more than just a good teacher. You are God in the flesh, God incarnate, the one who redeemed us so that we might have life. Be glorified through us, I pray, in your holy name. Amen. Amen.